About 65% of Americans rely on that broad range of health treatments that comes under the heading of alternative medicine. The global expenditures in such methods runs to $77 billion. It's the fastest growing area of medical spending. One problem? There have always been doubts about the efficacy of most alternative medicine therapies. Given their popularities, studies should have been undertaken in recent years to test their treatment, and uh, one should test the efficacy of any medical practice. In many cases now, the jury is in. Our guest today is the co-author of a new book which has summarized what can be said about these varied treatments. Simon Singh is a science journalist and best-selling author. He has a Ph.D. in particle physics. In his writings, he's worked to explain complicated ideas in a way that the general reader can grasp. He was joined by Dr. Edzard Ernst, M.D., the world's first professor of complementary medicine, to pen Trick or Treatment, the Undeniable Facts About Alternative Medicine. As a medical doctor, I can heartily endorse this book for anyone who receives any treatments which come under the category of alternative medicine. We're pleased to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Simon Singh. Hello. Now, alternative medicine means many things to many people. Can we start by defining which practices you focused on for your book? You're absolutely right. It's a hard term to define, and, and you have to define it, and then you have to look at those treatments one by one because some of the alternative treatments are effective, some uh, are, are not so. Uh, the ones we focused on were acupuncture, chiropractic, uh, homeopathy, and herbal medicine. And then towards the end of the book, we looked at a... a two or three dozen others, things like crystal healing, Reiki, um, magnetic healing, and so on. Uh, so we try to cover that broad spectrum. Well, uh, one enjoyable aspect of your book is it takes a very realistic look uh, back in time at the practice of medicine before the era of modern science to conclude uh, fairly, I think, that uh, doctors were bad at diagnosis and worse at treatments, and that for much of human history, patients often got better despite medical treatments, not because of them. Exactly. I think if you go back even just 150 years, um, doctors didn't really understand the inner workings of the human body, they didn't understand the causes of disease, and they certainly didn't understand the ways to treat and, and cure patients. And so, uh, you know, doctors were doing as much uh, good as they were doing harm, and, and possibly doing more harm than good. And, uh, and what transformed medicine was the idea of, of, of scientific testing. Let's take a therapy, let's give it to 100 patients, let's not give it to another 100 patients, and let's see which group uh, performs better. If, if the patients receiving the treatment uh, recover more than the other group, then presumably the treatment's effective. If not, then it's ineffective. Perhaps it's even dangerous. And, and that simple approach, uh, invented primarily by James, uh, uh, James Lind, a Scottish surgeon, um, that, that approach revolutionized medicine. And what we're saying in the book, I think, is that that same approach needs to be applied to alternative medicine. Alternative medicines may be alternative, but they can still be tested. In some cases, there have been some rigorous tests. And, and in a way, that's what we try and talk about in the book. What are the results of those tests on alternative medicine? And you cite some classic examples of this learning process in medicine, mentioning one now discarded treatment in medicine. I remember my dad telling me about this when I was a boy, but many of our listeners haven't heard this story. Uh, our first president, George Washington, got a severe throat infection. And unfortunately, was treated by his doctors by being bled. It didn't, it didn't have a good outcome. Bleeding was, a, was a, 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 a very, very common practice. The idea was that whatever was making you sick, 
the toxin, uh, whatever it was, was somehow stagnating in the blood. And by cutting the patient and releasing that blood, you could cure the patient. Sometimes you literally, with a blade, uh, pierce the skin. Sometimes you'd use a leech. Uh, one technique was to actually chop the end off the leech. So it would, it would continue sucking. It would never get full. It was quite a, quite a, a, a cruel approach, but one that doctors uh, practice quite often. Now, to the doctors at the time, it seemed like a sensible treatment because their forefathers had used it, their professors had told them to use it. Um, they tried it on patients, and sometimes it seemed to work. You know, somebody with, with a terrible fever that was thrashing about in bed would, would be sedated by the process of bloodletting, and, and this gave the effect of it being uh, a positive treatment. In, in the 19th century, uh, French doctors and others actually did clinical trials, in particular with patients with pneumonia. Some were bled, others were not. Those who were not bled did better than those who were bled. And, and it was very hard for doctors to, to take this because they would have selective memories. They would remember those patients who recovered and forget those that died or say, oh, they were going to die anyway. In fact, they were literally draining the lifeblood out of their patients. And only testing stopped that, that well, what now seems like quite a barbaric practice. Well, on this program, we've discussed uh, some of the bad news about homeopathy on, on many occasions. And uh, in your book, compared to acupuncture, chiropractic, and herbal medicine, it would seem that homeopathy may have the least to offer the public. Let's talk a bit about it. Yes, I think, I think homeopathy is a, a classic example of an alternative treatment that is widespread, is at the heart of a billion-dollar industry, and yet which has no evidence whatsoever to back it up. The, the, there have been over 200 clinical trials, and still there is no convincing evidence to suggest that, that homeopathy is effective. And just to remind people about what homeopathy is, the idea is that a little of what harms you can cure you. That, that's the first principle. So if you suffer from hay fever, maybe pollen can, can, can cure you. Now, how can pollen possibly cure you of hay fever? Well, the second premise is that you dilute the pollen. You dilute it over and over and over again. The less you have of this ingredient, um, the, the more chance it is that it can cure you. And um, it sounds like a bizarre idea. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all. But science is full of bizarre ideas, and so you test them nevertheless. And as I say, the bad news is when you test homeopathy, not only does it seem like an impossible idea, the, the results you know, back up that, 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 that conclusion. Yeah, it's curious to note, about a decade ago, The Lancet, a distinguished medical journal, published a, a meta-analysis which mathematically combines studies to try and uh, see what they, you know, sort of ma magnify the, uh, the effect of, uh, of what the study can, can tell you. It concluded that homeopathic practices were more likely to improve people versus controls, but do you note in the book, there really were some very major problems with that studies that really, in the end, rendered them invalid. I mean, I've said that trials are wonderful and, and scientific testing is, is the way to get to the truth. And, and the only word of caution there is that there are good trials and there are bad trials. Um, that, that you, you can actually look at a trial and try and assess its quality. And if a, if a trial has been conducted badly, it's worse than no trial at all because the results can be misleading and unreliable. And so uh, if you look at the good quality trials, and by good quality I mean you have a large number of patients, um, the patients are randomly assigned to either being treated or untreated. Um, the patients are, are blinded, which means that they don't necessarily know whether or not they're getting homeopathy or maybe a placebo sugar pill. When you have those good quality trials, that's when homeopathy fails to register 
any positive, um, you know, in, in general, there's still no convincing evidence. And um, it, it, it's strange. Well, we, we, the book was published uh, in Europe a few weeks ago now, and, and we immediately got a huge amount of criticism from homeopaths who said, we didn't know what we were talking about, we were being selective, um, you know, we were in the pay of the pharmaceutical industry, all sorts of, of horrible things were said about myself and my co-author. And, and we said, look, if you think we're wrong, we will give you a check for $20,000 straight away if you can show us any convincing evidence that homeopathy is effective. And, and several weeks later, still nobody's claimed that money because the truth is there is no convincing evidence. You, you discuss in, in your book something that really struck me as very odd about 20 years ago, 1988, there was some pretty good studies, or at least studies that were being repeated, that showed that homeopathic preparations could affect some white blood cells. And this, this caused quite a, big, uh, quite a big stir in the scientific community. And uh, it was alleged that, well, the water was holding a memory of the compounds. And, and when they finally took a look at this, as you explain in the book, uh, they were able to deduce how researchers had actually gone wrong here. It's an interesting story. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, it was a chap called Jack Benveniste, a French... Um a French researcher based in Paris, he, he um, tried to study homeopathy at a very fundamental level. So instead of looking at patients, looking at individual cells and looking at how homeopathic preparations could affect individual cells. Uh, now, homeopathic preparations, as we said earlier, less is more, according to homeopaths. So much so that the final remedy often has nothing in it whatsoever, no active ingredient, and yet still the memory is supposedly active. Now, he or his assistant seemed to observe that cells were affected by these, these remedies that had nothing in them. And it was such a revolutionary discovery that it made the most prestigious journal in the world, Nature, a scientific journal that's broken so many big news stories over the years. And uh, I, I remembered at the time, I, and I, I was astonished, here seemed to be evidence for homeopathy, which, which almost broke the laws of science. Um, now, Nature did something rather unusual. It said, you know, we published this paper, but we reserve the right to go back and investigate and repeat the experiments. And when they went back and repeated the experiment, um, they found out that actually there were just some biases that were creeping in. The observer so much wanted to see the effect that, that she was looking for um, that, that, that she sort of hoodwinked herself. It was subconscious. There was no deliberate... Uh, malpractice going on here. There was no deliberate deceit. But, you know, we have to be careful of, of falling for our own prejudices and, and, and seeing what we want to see rather than seeing what's really there. And when you, when you remove those biases and did inter independent analyses, then this effect gradually disappeared. And, and it's never really come back, to be honest. So um, I, I, I sort of wish that Nature had never published that paper or had done the proper studies before publishing it, because you'll still see that research quoted by homeopaths or others in order to try and back up their research. I mean, I should say two things here. One is that, um, you know, we're being very negative about homeopathy, um, but some of, you know, this same rigorous, almost brutal testing is also applied to conventional medicines. And many conventional medicines at the research stage fail because they're not going to work. And we have to apply that rigorous, brutal technique in order to eradicate um, treatments that just don't work or which might even harm us. And secondly, um, although we're being very negative about homeopathy, there are some alternative remedies which, which do pass this test. And, and 
what we're saying in the book is let's look at the evidence. If the evidence is positive, let's embrace that therapy. Let's try and exploit it and, and get the most out of it. And, and let's understand it even more so that we can enhance its effect. Well, in your book, acupuncture did not stand up to the best of scientific analyses. That, that's going to surprise some people. It, uh, I was surprised to learn that uh, studies from China had to be basically regarded with great suspicion due to the, the clear evidence there's been some deception and some political ma- manipulation involving tests of, uh, of acupuncture. The bottom line, just to, just to give the, the headline first, um, there's no convincing evidence that acupuncture works for any condition, uh, fertility, asthma, um, you know, all, those, all those kind of conditions it's sometimes hyped for, except um, in the treatment of nausea and some types of pain. For nausea and some types of pain, there's kind of a borderline evidence that acupuncture might be effective. The jury is still out, um, but I think I would say, you know, if it works for you, um, the evidence is kind of on your side, by all means, you know, continue with it. But, but be a little bit careful when you're considering your options to start with. If we go back in time, why is there such a huge industry of, of acupuncture? And why are there so many claims made when the science doesn't really back it up? Um, I think the reason for that is that, um, as you say, a lot of the research comes out of China, it's certainly in the early years, and there's something known as publication bias. What publication bias means, and it takes on different forms, is that if you, if you, publish, if you do some research and you get a positive result, and sometimes just by sheer luck you'll get a positive result, you rush to the journal, you give it to the journal, and the journal gratefully publish it because, hey, you've got a positive result, that's really important. If you get a neutral result, you think, well, actually, I won't even post it to the journal because this isn't very interesting. Or if you get a negative result, you say, well, hang on, why did I get a negative result? Uh, maybe, um, maybe I was just feeling ill myself and I wasn't conducting the acupuncture very well, or maybe I had patients who were too severely ill. So, so when you get a negative result, you become overly critical. And again, you don't submit it to the journal. So what that means is that the published research is generally rosier than the genuine research would reflect. So, for example, when we look in China, I think there's a particular problem here, certainly historically, because you very, very rarely find anything negative published about acupuncture. Whereas if you look at the research in in Europe and America, um, you get a much more balanced view where there's some really quite negative studies, some kind of vaguely positive, which is why I'm saying that the balance is slightly positive for nausea and, and the treatment of pain. And then the other reason why it's so, so widespread, I think, is that people only get to read the positive research. Um, the acupuncturists maybe only promote the positive research. And then we have things like traditional. Traditional seems to be good. If something's been used for hundreds of years or even thousands of years, surely it must be effective, otherwise it wouldn't have survived to the modern age. Now, that just, just isn't true. Uh, we were talking at the start of the program about bloodletting. Bloodletting is a practice that dates all the way back to the ancient Greeks. It was dangerous, and it took us 2,000 years to figure out it was dangerous. Now, acupuncture may or may not be dangerous. It may or may not be effective. But just because it's being used for thousands of years, we cannot assume that it's good. We're speaking with Simon Singh, producer for BBC Science Programs and co-author along with Professor Edzard Ernst of trick-or-treatment, the undeniable facts about alternative medicine. Chiropractic, we need to talk about a little bit, another alternative practice that a lot of people think of as really mainstream. I mean, they call themselves doctors, they get licensed, but I'd like you to tell us a bit about its uh, 
its colorful beginnings under Daniel David Palmer and how, like homeopathy, it sort of has a bit of a cultish aspect to it, at least at the beginning. It's a very American uh, treatment. Um, homeopathy started in Europe, acupuncture started in China. Um, chiropractic is, is one that uh, Americans have to take uh, the credit or blame for, depending, depending on, on how we look at it. Um, the, most people will think that you go to a chiropractor for back problems. They, they manipulate your spine. They adjust your spine. The vertebrae need to be aligned, and, and therefore they treat back problems. And that's true to some extent, and it's kind of effective to some extent. And I, I think if I had a back problem, I'd consider going to a, a, a chiropractor. There are some risks involved in manipulating the, the bones at the top of the neck, and I'd, I'd ask a chiropractor to avoid that. But otherwise, I, I might give it a go. They, they do as well or as badly as... As, as, as other forms of medical treatment. Uh, back pain is notoriously difficult to treat. Chiropractors do as well as, or as badly as anybody else. What people will be surprised about, I think, is that the origins of chiropractic um, date back to Daniel uh, David Palmer uh, towards the end of the 19th century, and he believed he could cure almost any condition, 95% of diseases, he believed he could cure by manipulating the spine. Uh, the reason for this was that the spine carries the, the, uh, the spinal cord, the nervous system that taps out to every other part of the body. Therefore, he thought that disease was sometimes uh, was somehow connected to an interruption in the, the nervous signal, uh, the, 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 the neuronal signal between the brain and that particular part of the body. Therefore, by, by fixing the spine and by, uh, by correcting the spinal cord and by... Uh, easing the flow of information, you could cure disease. Um, it sounds bizarre that you could cure a problem in your big toe by manipulating the spine, or you could cure a problem in your ear by manipulating the spine, but the first condition that Palmer treated was deafness, followed by uh, heart disease. And today, many chiropractors have moved away from that, and they restrict themselves to just treating back problems. But there is a very significant fraction who still believe they can treat things like asthma, um, colic in children, ear infections, a whole range of other conditions, or what we might call non-musculoskeletal conditions. And, and you know, there have been studies, and as yet, there is no convincing evidence that chiropractors can treat anything that goes into this non-musculoskeletal territory. I'd like to augment, to, too, the comments you make about being wary of, of neck manipulation. I remember a case... Uh, when I was a medical student uh, of someone who'd gotten very seriously injured by getting chiropractic neck manipulation. Yes, it's an interesting one because um, with conventional drugs, we, we know there are adverse effects and, and we look at it, we do a risk-benefit analysis and, and we know there are hazards because these drugs have been tested. They've been tested rigorously. Even when they reach the marketplace, doctors will look at for adverse effects and report them back. So there's continual monitoring. My fear with some alternative therapies and also chiropractic is that they still haven't got on top of the adverse effects of, of their treatment. So my co-author, Ed Zardern, um, did a study where he looked at, at how many adverse effects had been noted, and there were 700 cases of, of severe adverse reactions following on from chiropractic spinal manipulation. Um, and there, 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 there could be many, many, many more. And the problem is we just don't know. And, and I think it's, it's beholden to the chiropractic profession to really investigate the safety of what they're doing. 
um, because that's part and parcel. It has to be taken into consideration by patients when they look at the, the possible benefits offered by chiropractors. You do have some good news for uh, people that, uh, that that like alternative medicines, uh, at least in terms of some of the herbal medicines. They, they, in some cases, they have been demonstrated to have some value. You list a table of many of these popular herbs and what the evidence is for their effectiveness. Can we talk about some of the ones that have the, the best evidence for them? Yes, I think one of the, uh, one of the most impressive uh, herbal remedies is St. John's Wort. Um, there have been clinical trials of St. John's Wort, and the evidence is mounting that it, it does seem to be able to help in the treatment of mild depression. Some words of caution that still go with this, because you know, with any treatment, there will be adverse reactions. So, so you must talk to your doctor if you're thinking about taking St. John's Wort. Um, people think, well, it's natural, it's a natural herb, surely it must be good for me, it can't do me any harm. That's just not true. Um, plants are full of a chemical cocktail, and some of them will help us, some of them will harm us. And, and you need to know that St. John's wort can have adverse reactions, and you need to discuss that with your doctor. So, for example, one of the things that St. John's wort will do is it will accelerate the function of your liver. And if, it, if, if your liver is accelerated, what that will do is it will... Um, break down other uh, drugs and pharmaceuticals that you might be taking, things like anticoagulants, uh, the contraceptive pill, and so on. St. John's wort really does seem to be effective in the treatment of of, um, mild uh, depression, but as with anything, you need to treat it with caution. Yeah, as a a physician, I would like to add uh, my own caution on that, that although I understand that St. John's wort does have a good record, uh, my understanding is it works by what are called MAO inhibitors, which are, which are some drugs we use to treat uh, depression. There's something in the, in the plant that acts as an MAO inhibitor. These, uh, these are notorious for drug interactions, and that's why as a doctor I personally wouldn't endorse it unless it was really the only thing somebody was taking. The, the record shows it interacts with about half of, of, of known prescription drugs. And wow. The, the, I think immunosuppressants is, is another area where they will, will be effective, and there, there's certainly one recorded case of, of uh, a, a young woman having a kidney transplant, having immunosuppressants in order to, to allow the kidney to, to, to bed in, and then taking St. John's work, not telling her doctors because she thinks it's natural, it must be safe, and, and the, the St. John's work uh, destroying and undermining the effect of the immunosuppressant leading to the kidney being rejected, and, and that's maybe the most tragic case of, of what goes on, but, but it happens on many other levels as well. Yes, yeah, you, you and Dr. Ernst know that a lot of these herbal products sometimes are not well regulated, and so what they contain or might not contain in regard to its contamination and things sometimes isn't, isn't so well controlled. Yes, again, it comes back to this idea of natural. So you'll find that herbal um, uh, healers will, will really push the idea of natural being, being wonderful. And, and so natural might mean actually having the original plant and drying the original plant and grinding it up and mixing it into a tea rather than having a, 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 in the form of a pill where you have the extracts weighed and measured and you know the kind of dosage you're taking. The problem with taking it straight from the plant is that depending where the plant grew, the type of soil, the amount of sunshine, the dosage of the active ingredient will vary enormously. So Again, that's a situation where, where natural is not inherently good. Yes, I like the fact that you point out that uh, there, there's several sort of fallacies regarding alternative medicine. Uh, people say it's natural, it's traditional, or it's holistic, and then that, those may not mean so much. Yes, and I, and I think that the holistic one is, is, is almost a little bit offensive because, you know, doctors 
when they treat patients, all good doctors take a holistic approach. They look at your age, your background, your lifestyle, your, your, the history of conditions you've had, your, your family, and so on. So good doctors always take a holistic approach. And, and it, I, it slightly offends me sometimes when, when alternative therapists try and hijack this term uh, to, to sort of say, you know, we're, we're more holistic than, than, than thou, I suppose is the phrase we use in the book. Yes, you have a very funny quote, and there's something to the effect of, if, if a, listen, if a doctor can't make the placebo effect work for him, he needs to become a, uh, a pathologist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, we haven't really touched on the placebo effect, but, but everything has a placebo effect. And, and again, that explains why some of the treatments, uh, like homeopathy, seem to be effective. The simple act of taking a pill, which you believe will help you, will boost your psychology, will actually boost your physi- physiology, and... and on a short-term basis, perhaps on a longer-term basis, help you with some kind of recovery. And, and people think that it's the homeopathy that's helping them. In fact, it's merely the thought of the homeopathy that, that's helping them. And, and so people have said to us, look, if it's just the placebo effect, what's wrong with that? If, you know, if, if, if homeopathy can help people through the placebo effect, you know, let, it, let it be, let, let them carry on. And, and the fears I have around that issue, and I, I think these are really important, are that in order to get the placebo effect to work, there's a, a level of deceit that's involved. The homeopath has to hoodwink, accidentally, misguidedly, in a well-meaning way, whatever way, the patient is kind of fooled into believing that um, the homeopathy will help them. Now, for years, we've tried to have an open and honest relationship between practitioner and patient so that patients know the real truth. And so if we're going to try and maintain that, that homeopathy is effective, we have to maintain the lie that it's passed some kind of test, which, which it hasn't done. Um, and, and there are several other reasons why I think placebo is ineffective. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be used to justify alternative remedies on their own. But I think the most important one is, as you've hinted at, conventional treatments also come with a placebo effect. So if I've got hay fever, why would I take homeopathy, which is just a placebo, when I can have an antihistamine which is real and has a placebo bonus thrown in for good measure. I want to say, Dr. Simon, that you, you and Dr. Ernst have put together in Trick or Treatment probably the best, uh, most comprehensive explanation of what goes into the placebo effect that I've read anywhere. Thank you very much. It, it's a really important um, part of medicine. And, and, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, it's just the placebo effect. And, and when they say that, I don't think anybody means to, to dismiss the placebo effect as being a, a minor thing or, or something that should be ignored. We should exploit it to the max but by having a good doctor-patient relationships, by, by trying to build the patient's confidence in a treatment. But we shouldn't deceive them about what their treatment actually is. Well, just uh, we're wrapping it up on time here. I, I, I know we don't have time to go into your, uh, your comprehensive listing of uh, a rapid guide to alternative therapy piece at the, at the back of the book. But maybe you can just mention a couple of them that, uh, that sort of seem to, seem to do well in your analysis. Um, on the good side, I think some of the exercise therapies, things like Tai Chi and, and yoga, are generally good for, for well-being. We know exercise is good and, and, and helps ward off a whole, sort, a whole range of conditions. Um, some of the massage techniques are good for uh, reducing pain and, 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 again, have a general positive effect on our well-being. And, and by massage, I mean sort of traditional massage. As long as it's not too fierce and, 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 and too rough, um, it just makes us feel better. It increases blood flow and so on. Um, but I, I would kind of probably discourage people from 
the more esoteric forms of massage, like Reiki, um, where your therapist might be talking about increasing your levels of chi and, and trying to add bells and whistles that really <laughs> don't exist. So massage, great. Massage plus mumbo-jumbo, just very, very expensive, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'd like to add, when I first heard about ear candles, I was incredulous, and, and you've demonstrated they don't work. <laughs> but, yes, uh, and again, it, it, even a little you know, a health risk associated, if you've got flames next to your body and hot wax, you know, it's certainly not doing you any good, and it can even cause minor burns and, and even one or two cases of more severe things happening. Well, a final question. In New Scientist magazine, your co-author, Dr. Ernst, noted that uh, alternative medicines are sometimes just sort of ultimately a triumph of advertising over rationality. And I, my, my question would be, are you encouraged by the success of your book, since it's generating quite a bit of uh, interest, I think, that, that, that rationality can fight back? Yes, and, and I think rationality it can be a, it's a wonderful thing. It, it, it shouldn't be seen as a spoiler, that we, we're not kind of some kind of wet blanket where we're kind of, kind of spoil the party. Um, rationality has given us vaccination. There are people listening to this program now who wouldn't be alive. If, if it weren't for, 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 for the whole range of medical techniques that have, have been brought to bear on our, on our lives. And, and, you know, rational approach to, to alternative medicine will identify those that are effective and, and will bring those into the mainstream because medicine is, is quite an open-minded profession. If anybody can prove that their technique is cost-effective, safe, and, and effective for patients, most importantly, then it gets embraced, and that, that's the way to move forward by taking that kind of rational approach. The book is Trick or Treatment, The Undeniable Facts About Alternative Medicine. I, I highly recommend this book, and I thank our guest, co-author Simon Singh, for speaking with us. Thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.